All right, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2, continuing on over the summer in our study of the Psalms. And I want to begin with this question. Have you ever tried your best and still failed? Where you put forward your best effort and you still lost, you still didn't get what you want, you didn't get what that could have produced. Think about tryouts for sports or, or a musical group where you perform to the best of your ability and you still fail. Or you think of a job where you interview and maybe it's not even that you had a bad interview, but there were better candidates. And so you gave your best, you did all you could, and you still failed. In Psalm 1, which we looked at last week, we talked about finding life and blessing through obedience. And that if you make the right choices, if you obey God and follow his word, you will find blessing. And if that was the only psalm in the Bible, Christianity would be just like every other religion. Do your best and everything will work out. But we know, first of all, that we don't always do our best that we fail. And though we might want to obey God and his word, and even if we tried really, really, really hard to do it, we could never measure up to the standard of holiness of God. And so if Psalm 1 was it, if Psalm 1 was the only psalm in the Bible we'd be pretty hopeless. And we might be a little depressed because we know that we couldn't live up to it and therefore we could never experience blessing. Thankfully, there's more than one psalm in your Bible. And Psalm 2 is the second piece of the puzzle. Now I said last week, and I'll say it again this week, that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are sort of the introductory chapters to the book. In these two psalms, helps us to understand what the book of Psalms is all about. And one of the clues that this is true is to look at the beginning of Psalm 1 and the end of Psalm 2. I think I have a slide for this one, Matt. So if you look at Psalm 1-1 and Psalm 2-12, look what they say. Here's Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That the way we find blessing and life, the way they were, we were meant to live, is found in obedience obedience to God's word. But then look at the end of Psalm 2. 
It's on the same slide there. Let me read the end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we have the very first verse of Psalm 1 begins with this idea of being blessed and finding blessing from God. And the very last verse of Psalm 2 ends with this idea of finding blessing from God. And so these two psalms are like puzzle pieces that fit together to help us understand how do I live the blessed life that God created me to live. I shared this quote last week, but it bears sharing again. This is from uh, someone summarizing the book of Psalms. And he says, Psalms is the prayer book of God's people who are striving to be faithful to the commands of God's word, that's Psalm 1, as they hope and wait for the future messianic king, Psalm 2. That we find blessing in obedience, but that's only part of the story. Because if blessing was based on our obedience, none of us would have it. And so the second part, Psalm 2 here, is going to introduce us to a king. And blessing is found in finding our refuge in him. And we're going to explore this morning what that means. First, we're going to talk about who that king is. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. But, but secondly, we're going to try to unpack and understand what it means to take refuge in him. So our big idea, if you're following along this morning in the outline provided in your bulletin, is this. The hope of blessing is only found through King Jesus. So let's look at point number one there. The Lord laughs at the rebels. So verses 1 to 4 of Psalm 2. Follow along as I read. By the way, I totally forgot to mention this. Page 448 in the chair Bibles. So Psalm 2, verses 1 to 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. So again, as we talked about last week, the Psalms is poetry collection of poems and songs. And so we have this, again, a vivid picture of rebellion against God. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The rumbling of a crowd beginning to riot. And then verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. All these enemy kings gathering for war and making a plan to fight against their common enemy. War is coming. Rebellion is coming. And maybe as a flavor of surprise, it is war against the Lord. That there is a rebellious 
people from all nations fomenting war, a revolution against the God of the universe. They want to declare their independence from God and his anointed, his chosen person. And I love God's response. He laughs. After this terrible picture of armies coming together and generals and kings planning a coup, all this picture of violence, God looks at it and laughs. It reminds me of sometimes when, when especially Theodore does this, where, where he'll walk up and he is not happy with me <laughs> because I have been a parent that day. <laughs> and he looks at me, maybe he stomps his foot, maybe he gets that look on his face where he's like, I'm not happy with you. He'll tell me, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> and that's my response because there's a certain absurdity to this little three-year-old <laughs> trying to fight me, trying to, to win against me, and not just my, my sheer size difference of how much bigger I am than him, but you just have to hide your laugh so he doesn't know. <laughs> that might make him matter, you know? <laughs> But you take this picture of an army and God laughs at them like the little defiant three-year-old. Why? What does the text tell us? Look at verse 4. Look at the description of God in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. No army, no matter how big or how smart or how strong, is nothing more than a child having a temper tantrum to the Lord who sits in the heavens. It is so unfair, the fight, that God laughs. Any rebellion, any fight against God is laughable. But in verses 5 to 9, we see God's further response. And again, the picture up until now has been one of war. And we see God's response starting in verse 5. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. You cannot rebel against the holy God of the universe and not experience his wrath and judgment because guess what? If you're fighting with him and you disagree with him, guess what? You're wrong. 
because he is always right, because he is the God who sits in the heavens. And so this, this rage against God, this military coup against God is met with wrath and fury. How dare you fight against me? Don't you know who I am? But then, we might expect God to describe some form of judgment. And he does, but in a different way than we might expect. Look what God does because of his wrath against this rebellious people. Look at verse 6. So again, think, this is what they have done. They have tried to revolt against God and rebel against him, and in his wrath he speaks, and then he acts in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. When you read this with fresh eyes, you come to that and you're like, I don't know if I really expected God to do that. His response to this rebellion is to say, I have a king and I have placed my king on my holy hill. Reference to Jerusalem, there the capital. And then he goes further on to describe who this king is. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this should remind us of the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Matt, I think I have a slide on this one. So God is saying to David, sorry if it's a little small, you can flip there too, but God is saying to David, look, you wanted to build me a house, a temple, but I'm going to build your house, meaning kingly dynasty. A little play on words there in the Bible. And if you look at verse 14, sorry, starting at verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is talking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a promise God made to King David, that he would treat David's descendants like a son. And so Psalm 2 reminds us of 2 Samuel 7, and, as we'll get into a little bit later, the New Testament 
when it quotes Psalm 2, is very clear that Psalm 2 was talking about Jesus. And so this kingly arrangement, in fact, the whole king line that came from David was meant to help people later understand Jesus. To where it would not be someone who was treated like a son, but in fact would be God's son. And so that helps us connect Psalm 2 to who Jesus is as the Son of God. And so God is going to put his very Son on the throne. His representative to the people. But what will he do? Let's look at verse 8. First of all, this king, this son king, will rule over a people. Look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So again, we need to think about a king. Kings had nations. Kings had people under them that they were responsible for and that those people were responsible to them. Jesus is the same way. As a king, he has a people. And what do we notice about these people? They are from every nation on earth. Again, look at verse 8. I will make the nations plural, your heritage, and the ends of the earth, your possession. Kings had boundaries, but this king, as the son of God, has no boundaries. His people are from the ends of the earth. From Whidbey Island all the way to the islands in the South Pacific. From every tongue, tribe, and nation, Jesus as king will have a people. But he will also have enemies. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The rod of iron is a very common phrase or image in your Bible to talk about a king's rule and a king's authority and power. In fact, we'll see language like this in the book of Revelation near the end where we represent King Jesus as coming in power. Revelation borrows language from Psalm Two. And so with a rod of iron as a king, you rule your people. They listen to you. They obey. But it is also, as you see in the second half of verse 9, a picture of judgment. One of the jobs of a king back then was to adjudicate legal issues. 
And so one of the jobs of the king was to render judgment. And King Jesus is the same. That his enemies, those who are guilty, will be brought to justice. And again, a very vivid picture of justice here. Rod of iron versus a clay pot. The iron wins every time. And so we see that this king will not stand for rebellion. He will judge justly, and those who are guilty will be brought to justice, just as an iron bar smashes a clay pot. So this is God's response to the rebellion of the first couple verses. This is how God responds to sinful people rebelling against a holy God. He installs a king who will judge the people and will find them guilty and innocent. And so the people have rebelled. God has responded and said what he is going to do. And then the last piece of Psalm 2 is the response of the people to this king. How will they respond to the king who rules with a rod of iron and smashes his enemies like clay pots? Let's look at verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, see the connection there? (laughs) If all this is true, and it is, therefore, what are you going to do? Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. The psalmist is saying, listen. Make the right decision. The stakes are high. These are issues of life and death, life and judgment. So be warned and be wise. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Again, this is a common phrase used in your Bible to talk about our relationship with God. This is a sense of fear. So we need to understand what does it mean for me to rightly fear God? It's very important because your Bible is full of this phrase. So we need to rightly understand it. And you can abuse it, and you can make it impotent. So we need to rightly understand what it is. Look what the text says. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. There's a sense in which the fear of the Lord is serving, being obedient to what God has said. Again, connecting us back to Psalm 1, following what God has written in his word and in obedience. That just like the servants would serve a king in their country, so too we serve God. The Lord. 
He has the authority to tell us how to live, and we are to serve him as God. And then in the second part of verse 11, rejoice with trembling. You almost can't put those two words together. (laughs) What does it mean for us to rejoice with trembling in the presence of the Lord? Here's one thing I think it means, a starting point, if you will. It is a recognition that God is God and I am not. That he is the sovereign, holy God of the universe and I am someone created by him and who, because of my sin, is in rebellion against him. That, that I can rejoice that he is my God and he created me exactly the way that I am and that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But he is also the holy God of the universe. You think of the different stories in the Bible where people are brought into the presence of God. What do they do? They fall down. So if you're ever in that situation, if you find yourself in the presence of God, just drop down. It's just a good idea. But why? Because of the weight of glory and majesty that they fall to their knees saying, I am unworthy. And that's where we begin this idea of fear of the Lord, that he is our king, he is our ruler, and he is our God. And so how do we respond to the king? We, 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 we take care to, make, to know that this is a life and death decision. We, we fear him with joy. And then thirdly, we see that life is available to us through the Son. Look at verse 12. Throughout this psalm, we've had lots of images of war and aggression and violence. And then we get to verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's talk about this idea of kiss the sun. This is, this is not how we normally talk here in the States in this time in our history. This idea of kissing the sun is a way to demonstrate um, humility. It's a way to demonstrate a relationship You know, when I read this, I always think of those mobster movies where the guy goes into the Godfather and kisses his ring. Right? Why does he do that? He is showing, he is demonstrating that I recognize who you are and your authority and that we are friends. Okay, so our response to this God who is a holy God who judges the wicked and rebellious, the way to find refuge is through the Son. 
So if you want to be reconciled to the God who created you, the God of the universe, you must do it through the Son. And if you do, if you reconcile yourself to God's Son, you will find life. Again, that last sentence there, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. And again, as we defined blessing last week, this idea of God's favor and life as we were always meant to live. So life is found through the Son. The life you were meant to live is found through the Son. And so then we have to ask this question. What does it mean to take refuge in the Son? If I want to find blessing, if I want to have the life, the abundant life that God wants for me, what does it mean to take refuge in the Son? And again, this is where the New Testament is so helpful for us understanding Psalm 2, is the New Testament is very clear that Psalm 2 is talking about Jesus. And how do I find refuge in Jesus? And again, the Bible is very clear about that. That as a refuge from our sin and the judgment that that sin deserves, the Bible is very clear that we repent of that sin and we place our personal trust in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we find life. And Psalm 2 helps us understand it is only through the Son that that life can be found. You see again how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 fit together. That as we find refuge in the Son and the hope of life and life eternal, we then live a life of obedience being transformed by the Son. And blessing is found when we are in right relationship to God through the Son and live a life of obedience according to His Word. And these two psalms together, again, I said they're the intro to the whole book of psalms, that all of these psalms, all of the other 148 psalms, are to help us to understand what it means to find refuge in Jesus and what it means to live a life of obedience in response to that salvation. And so as you read through the psalms, as you read through the beautiful poetry and the songs that are found in there, that the purpose of those, of all of them, is that you would understand what it means to have a Savior who's your King. Jesus who saves you from judgment and saves you from sin and for whom you live a life of obedience in thanks to him. Interestingly, Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted chapters of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And so we understand that this is the point of our Bible, that God 
didn't wipe us out as rebels. He didn't just destroy us in our sin, but sent a king to live among us, to die for us, and in whom we can find forgiveness and eternal life when we place our faith in him. The hope of blessing, the hope of life and life abundant is only found in this king, King Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Psalm 2 and that you did not destroy us in our rebellion but sent your Son to die for us, to reconcile us back to you so that we can live the life you've created us to live. And God, that as you draw people from every nation, that we would share the message of King Jesus with all people, people here in our community and to support those who are sharing Jesus with those who live across the world. That today we would know that our King is King Jesus and to serve him with joy and fear and find refuge and life in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.